Austin Herald Radio. This audio podcast brought to you by Beacon Hill Wine and Spirits and Beacon Hill Wine and Gourmet. Go to BeaconHillWine.com. Miller still waiting for his first pitch. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts, safe. Ortiz in the deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight. Bring it a high fly ball left field deep. Down the line toward the wall. Grand slam. Shane Victorino with a grand slam. And the Red Sox have the lead. Swing and a high deep drive in the right field. That one stalled to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. The light goes on. Puppy goes on. It hasn't happened at Fenway Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. This is a Boston Herald Radio special presentation. Stepping off the bag with Boston Herald Red Sox reporters Jason Mastrodonato and Evan Drellick. Welcome to another edition of the Boston Herald Red Sox Stepping Off the Bad podcast. I am one of the beat writers, Jason Mastrodonato, alongside my special guest today, Red Sox third baseman Travis Shaw. And Travis, we're in we're in Atlanta here. This is kind of a special place for you, right? This is where you made your third base debut. Um, is it weird to think that you know that was almost a year ago, and now you're the regular third baseman of this team? Yeah, it is kind of weird. I mean, if you'd have told me last year that. I would have started on opening day at third base. I probably wouldn't have believed you. It's just the third base things come a little fast for me, and I know I've worked at it pretty hard this offseason, but still to be in this situation at this point in the year, it's it's pretty special and it's pretty fun. And, I mean, you, you look back, I mean, you played third base your whole college career. Um, in high school, was, was third your position as well? Shortstop in high school. Shortstop. Summer ball was third base, but uh, my <laughs> high school team was shortstop. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you know, you're a natural in the infield. And when, I was astounded to find out today when I was looking up some stuff that you hit 560 in high school. And I know a lot of people have crazy batting averages in high school. But, what, I mean, what do you remember about your, your high school career? Um, I mean, it wasn't the greatest competition in the world. I mean, there's not very – I mean, you would run into a few guys that would throw – in the upper 80s, but other than that, I mean, the pitching wasn't great. I'm from a smaller town, so um, for me, it was just it was for me, it was trying to get myself exposure. I mean, because I I didn't start travel I didn't start really travel ball until I was a junior in high school, and I think that was that was mainly the reason. I feel like I didn't get I was kind of under recruited because I didn't get recruited by a ton of big schools, and I played three sports, so I never did all the perfect game stuff and all that stuff. Yeah. So. For me, it was just try to get as much exposure as I could, especially later in my high school career, and uh, ended up going to Kent State, which was a really good program. It still is yeah. around the Ohio, around that area. It's definitely the best program in Ohio, and uh, turned out to be a pretty, pretty good decision for and me. You played football and golf, right? Uh, I, I played football until I was a senior. I got hurt my junior year, so I played golf instead of football, and then I played basketball as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, growing up, and this is, I think this is like a big debate now that parents and coaches are always having is should their kids focus on one sport or play multiple sports? As a multiple sport guy, are you an advocate yeah. for doing so? Yes. And I think that's partly the reason. Uh, I feel like I'm pretty athletic for my size, and I think those other sports are the reason for that. I mean, you become sport, if you become sport-specific too early, you're going to become a robot. I mean, if you only play baseball, the only thing you know are baseball moves. 
and just other sports teach you so many different things. And I'm a huge advocate for, especially kids, uh, playing as many sports as they can. Yeah. Was football like a sport that you really enjoyed playing, or did you do it to keep in shape? Uh, it was kind of like I didn't particularly like football, but yeah. if, if you, it was kind of weird if you didn't play football where I was from. Everybody played football. All my friends did, and. Um, for me, it was where I kind of gained the most strength in high school. I mean, that's where I did most of my weightlifting and all that kind of stuff. So it was a strength thing for me. And then um, basketball was definitely kept me in shape. And I feel like helped my quickness the most, I guess, was basketball. What position did you play in football? Tight end. Okay. Yep. All right. Travis Kel- you got the Travis Kelsey look to you, the yep. size and build. Um, so in golf your senior year, did, yep. uh, do you still golf? Mm-hmm. All the time. Yeah. I yeah. love golf. That's like when I need to like chill out, or if I, honestly when my swing feels a little messed up, I'll go play around the golf. Really? I don't know if it's it's probably more mental than it is anything else, but I feel like golf kind of gets me back to where I need to be. And like off days, if I just want to chill out, I'll just go play around the golf. It's just super yeah. relaxing for me. I think Johannes Cespedes that plays golf every day before he goes yeah. to the field. Playing before a game, that's a little tricky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I play a decent amount. Yeah. So okay, you don't think you got the exposure, which is hard for a lot of kids yeah. to, to get in, in high school. Thirty-second round draft pick by the Red Sox coming out of high school. Was it an easy choice for you to go to college, or was that something that you had to think about? No, it was pretty easy. Uh, we kind of gave them a high financial goal, I guess, that I was looking for. And, I mean, they never, they never even came close to that. So yeah. it was pretty, pretty easy decision for me. And was your dad kind of a big influence in that? You know, having been through the. Yeah. system himself. He basically told me, he's the one that set the, the financial low the low point, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he says, if you don't get this, you need, you need to go to school. Just, I mean, he'd been through everything, and I took his advice, and yeah. everything's worked. Now, at this point, coming out of high school, were you, like, did you have full, total belief in yourself yeah. that you could be a professional yeah. athlete, or were, was it still like, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll study in this, maybe I'll do that? There were still questions. I mean, yeah. you don't when you want to go to certain schools, and I mean, they don't even look at you. It's kind of like, eh, right. maybe I don't know yet. So it's the there were still the being drafted was big for my confidence because that was actually kind of a shock to me when they when I got that call and found out I was drafted. So um, that was a big confidence booster for me. And then obviously when I started producing pretty early my freshman year at college, and that's kind of when the the belief started kicking in a little bit more. Did you like school? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was a good student. You were, I think you were like a National Honor Society, was it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was a finance major at Kent State, so I, uh, I took school seriously and always had good grades, so pretty good student. If you weren't an athlete, what would you want to do? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I was going to get my finance degree, but I was still kind of determining how I wanted to go with that, whether it be like a financial advisor or one of those analysts yeah. or whatever, but... Wasn't quite sure. Still not quite sure if I if I ever would need it. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Scott Strickland, your your coach at Kent State, um, told me last year. I was talking about when he went and visited with you to try to recruit you to Kent State. It, he told you, "I see you as a first baseman." Um, how did you deal with that? Were you okay with with possibly playing first in the future, or were you really in love with third? And uh, I was fine with it. Yeah. I mean, he's a pretty good salesman when it came to recruiting. <laughs> so. He, I mean, he did tell me, he goes, you probably won't play third base for us ever. And I was like, all right. I just, I knew that was a good program, and I thought development-wise that was going to be my best option out of all the offers that I got. And 
from that moment, from when I stood, and then when I got there, I think, I mean, I never really played first at all at camp. I played third my whole career there. And when I started started as a freshman at third, that's kind of when I took that mentality that I feel like I can prove people wrong kind of everywhere. And yeah. It seemed that's, that's kind of, that kind of seemed to be the jump start for that little, I guess you would call it chip on your shoulder. Yeah, thing. yeah. And that's helped you, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, big time. And you're, I mean, you, you crushed the ball at Kent State. I think you had 330 both years. Yeah. Was the second year, did you notice a lot of development? Yeah, my pa- that's when my power kind of took off. I mean, I hit, I think I hit seven or eight home runs as a freshman, but my sophomore year, I think it was like 17 or something like yeah. that. So that was big time power boost my sophomore year. And then junior year, we switched to those new bats and I still led the conference in home runs. And so going into my sophomore year was probably the biggest development stage that I saw. Went to the Cape the summer after my sophomore year, held my own up there in the middle of the order. Uh, was among the league leaders and power-wise up there too. So uh, that was that, that was a big year for my development. When when the draft day comes, is there like, are you targeting a, a specific time? Man, I hope I go in the third round or the fourth round. Or we had a pretty good idea. Um, at least my agent thought he had a pretty good idea. We we had a target from like the five to seven range, and it ended up slipping a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was driving home from college. We had just got beaten regional, so I was driving home um, when I finally did get the call, and I was I was checking it on my phone. And then once it got past the seventh round, I kind of got a little pissed off. So I just stopped watching it and then uh, finally got that call in the ninth round. And, and you were upset about that? A little bit. <laughs> about I mean, the call. Just, I wasn't upset. It was a good organ. I, I wanted to be drafted by the Red Sox, yeah. but I mean, it was a little later than I was anticipating. Right. So. But you went, in, you went in and your first year, I think you crushed the ball. 2012, you hit the ball really well. Yep. Um, was it 2013 that was the first year maybe you had your first yeah, struggle? Yeah, 2013 was, turned out to be the, the best year of my career, which is weird to say because it was the worst year I had in the minors, but uh, the biggest blessing. I think everybody needs to struggle before they get to the big leagues just so they know how to handle it. And for me, that was the year that I kind of figured out who I was, what I could do, and what I couldn't do at the plate. And I switched to the leg kick that year um, and really learned every in and out of my swing and what it takes to be where it needs to be and like I said 2013 it was a a terrible year to go through for me at the time but looking back on it's been the best year the was your opposite field swing it was gone okay I I, that was Adrian Gonzalez had just got traded Um, I made it to double a my first full year and I legitimately tried to hit like 35 or 40 home runs in minor leagues and it it didn't work yeah you just had your eyes on first base just straight I was trying to launch every single ball to right field, and I could not hit it to left field to save my life. <laughs> so the leg kick actually helped you hit it to left when you I couldn't stay back? Well, the reason I switched was I had a toe tap, but I could not stay back. And I thought maybe with the leg kick raising up a little bit, it would help me get to that backside and stay back there a little bit. And it was weird because it was like on a Tuesday, I did the toe tap, and there was like no really trying it out. I just was like, all right, it can't get any worse. So I just switched to a leg kick, like, within two days of trying it. I mean, it wasn't really great when yeah. I first started, but it eventually developed into where it is right now. Yeah, and uh, I mean, when you hit in AAA, I think, you know, you had some moments in AAA, but they weren't like numbers that blew off the page or anything. Um, did you, you've kind of dealt with the stigma, I guess, since then people say, well, Travis didn't crush the ball at AAA. So expectations might be different for you here. Yeah. What do you, how do you look at your time in AAA? 
Uh, I, I thought it was fine. I mean, the first year I was there, I thought I hit the ball really well, actually. I mean, that was that was my biggest power year. It was 2014, and I mean, I wasn't trying to hit home runs. I ended up hitting 22 home runs that year, and it's just, I mean, minor leagues can be difficult. I mean, you got you got guys coming and going. You don't really have scouting reports on guys. It's some guys thrive in it, and some guys don't. And yeah. for me, I mean, I felt like my swing was exactly what it is right now down there. It was just just tended not to get not to get the results that I have so far up here. And when you did come up and had the results right away, was was that just the ultimate satisfaction for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Going in, at the end of last season was huge confidence booster and kind of proved to myself. I thought, like, my first couple call-ups, I, don't, I forget how many bats it took me to get my first hit, like 10, 12, somewhere in there. But it was weird because those 10 to 12 of bats, I was like, if this is what it's like, I feel like I can do some damage up here. Yeah. And eventually it did turn to that point. And we, we had a conversation, I remember, like the second day of spring training where you had said, I want to win a starting job this year. And, um, you know, you said, I, what I did last year is not a fluke. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you had to prove that to, to fans, as coaches, whoever it is along the way. But how, how did you deal with that, um, you know, idea that it was a small sample size and maybe that was... For me, it wasn't a small yeah. sample size. I mean, two, over 200 bats, it's, I mean, that's pretty good. It is small, if you can think about it, but at the same time, it's not like it was just September. I mean, it was two months. And I was hitting... I mean, I hit fifth for most of that time too. So uh, I thought I thought it was a pretty good. I thought I got. For the thing for me was I saw the league adjust to me in late August, and I felt like I did a pretty good job of adjusting back to them and having success outside of that slump that I got into a little bit in late August. And that that was kind of the telling point for me. It was I noticed the league adjusting to me completely different than where they started, mm -hmm. and then it took me it took me about a week and a half, two weeks to kind of readjust to them. And then I had success again, so that was kind of the telling point for me. As soon as I readjusted the demo, I was like, I feel like I ended up here. And you're still adjusting. Now teams are yep. yesterday. Their outfield was actually shifted to opposite field on you. Um, I've seen that before. I mean, that's <laughs> a lot of teams like they feel like the left center field is my my strength, so they want to take that away. So it's something that I don't really look at shifts because when you try to start steering away from the shift, that's when you're going to start missing pitches that you you can really hit. Yeah, and it's funny because. Um, early in the season, there were some pinch hit opportunities where you were taken out against left-handers, but you've hit left-handers well your whole career. And I was talking to John Atkins, who scouted you, and he said he remembered there was games where every time in college, the other team would bring in a lefty to face you. So this is something you've dealt with, yeah. facing lefties. How do you think you've gotten so good against lefties? Uh, it's, it's been a process. Uh, Rich Gedman kind of changed my whole philosophy and approach against lefties. And... I was bad. I mean, I used to be bad against lefties. I mean, lefties would come in, and I'd, I mean, I wasn't going to get a hit. And I completely changed the way I approached them and looked at them. And uh, from about, I think it was late 2013, that was kind of when I changed my whole approach against them. And so far, it's it's worked since then. And like even now, I mean, it's it looks like John hasn't been pitch hitting you, and that yep. that's got to give you a lot of confidence to know that the team sees that you can hit lefties as well. Yeah, I mean, the other day against Toronto in that big spot, was it Toronto? No, it was Tampa. 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 Sorry. He left me in in the in the seventh or eighth inning with kind of the tying run on on third, I think it was, and for me to get the hit right there, I and mean, that's like you said, when, when you when they when they have that trust in you, and then you can come through, that's big. Yeah. 
Well, Travis Shaw has come a long way from Washington Courthouse High School in Ohio. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Travis. No problem. I am Jason Mastrodonato alongside my special guest today, Evan Drellick, uh, who's been covering the team for a few weeks now for us. Evan, we just heard the Travis Shaw interview. I, I really enjoyed talking to this guy. I think he's one of the rare guys who's actually open and honest. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me was he said in 2013, the Red Sox had just gotten rid of Adrian Gonzalez. He saw the opening at first base. And he said, I'm coming for that job. And he tried. He said he tried hitting 40 home runs in the minors. It turned out to be his worst minor league season. And he thinks that actually made his career because he got so much better off of that. What we've seen from him in the majors has been incredibly impressive. You've been here a month now. What are your impressions of this guy at third base? First of all, the demeanor is very impressive. You watch him in the clubhouse. He doesn't look like a kid who just got here. He looks like somebody who's been around, who's comfortable, and I think that's important, that you have confidence in your own skin when you get here and that uh, you're not shy or, or uh, caught in the bright lights too much. Uh, one of the things I talked to him about was his ability to play third base and how everybody always doubted him. It was the one label he always had. This guy can never play third. And maybe in the same way that he saw the opening with Adrian leaving, he took that motivation of people doubting him at third base and turned that into another form of motivation to get better as well. So I think he's somebody who's always been able to channel his energy where he wants it to, and we're seeing the success that can produce. Exactly. Very mature person considering he's 25 years old. Uh, and I think you're right about his dad being a big leaguer. I mean, this, this, as a kid, he grew up in big league clubhouses. Some guys, they get here, and you see them clearly uh, – Annoyed maybe by some of the aspects that come along with this, maybe a little um, rattled by it, and he's really he's really held his own. I I think he's here to stay. I mean, I understand he's got a 720 OPS in AAA and an 820 OPS in the big leagues, um, but I I think he's a legitimate player that this team's going to be able to rely on. Do you is it too soon for you to to make that uh, statement? No, I don't think so. It's not a great example right now because of how bad a start he's had, but Ken Giles, who was a Phillies reliever, did very poorly in the minor leagues, had a terrible walk rate, got to the big leagues, and all of a sudden he figured it out. Guys can figure it out outside of the minor leagues. It's not the most common route, but it does happen. And I think to doubt him because, well, he didn't do it at AAA, but he's doing it now, you're making a mistake. Watch what you have in front of you. See how a player may have changed since those minor league days. Speaking of being doubted, uh, Rick Porcello comes into this season as of making this podcast. He is 4-0 and with a 3.5 ERA. Um, I thought you had an excellent story on him this week where you talk about how this contract that he signed before throwing a pitch in a Red Sox uniform, uh, he was a you know, maybe a number three guy in Detroit when the Red Sox signed him to a four-year, $82.5 million contract extension. Had a really bad first season last year. Why do you think, and you talked to him, you've talked to a lot of people about this, why is Rick Porcello uh, a good pitcher now? The why in terms of what he's changed from when he was struggling seems to be the delivery work that he did once he came back from the disabled list last year. And he felt like he lost some of that muscle memory over the winter, which happens to pitchers. You see it happen to other guys. You've seen it happen uh, maybe even to David Price at points. When you see pitchers struggle in April, it's usually because something over the winter got lost in those months. And he felt like it took a while to get it, he got it back, and now he's, I think, normalizing a bit. You look at his career, what he did last year, 
it doesn't fit in with the rest of it. And you look at the numbers since August 26 on through the present. He's been one of the better pitchers in the American League, and you can line him up with any of the bigger names in different categories, and it's a very impressive group. you got guys like Chris Sale and uh, Dallas Keuchel, uh, Corey Kluber that he's outdoing in certain categories. And I'm not saying he's an ace or as talented as these guys are, but when you forget, forget the fact that this guy was in three or four in Detroit. I, I think that gets overplayed because who he was pitching with in that rotation. <laughs> Innings are expensive on the open market. Young pitchers are expensive on the open market. And if he's decent, and I'm, I'm not saying excellent, I'm not saying number two, if he gives you innings, if he has a four-ish ERA at $80 million over four years in what we presume really is a pitcher's prime, or maybe even slightly after it if we think the prime's getting younger, this isn't a bad pickup. It's not the greatest. It's not the... the you know, the, 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 the club-friendly deal to end all club-friendly deals, but for everyone to throw their arms up after one year, I think it was a symptom of everything else going wrong right. and people wanting to label something else. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it was. It, I, I'd agree with you. He also was bad last year. Right. And when, when you come to a new franchise, and it's Boston, and it's not just, you know, showing up to the Atlanta Braves, um, it's different in Boston. We've seen that with many guys who have come through here and have not been able to handle this. And I thought you had a good quote in your story the other day where you, you asked Mike Hazen if it was, was kind of like a Carl Crawford situation where Crawford could not handle it, where he struggled uh, and he didn't like being here. And he's since said a lot of bad things about Boston since he left. Porcello, for as bad as he was last year, there was never a moment where I think anybody said he can't handle this. Uh, he still handled himself well to the media. I don't think he was happy about the way he, he, he was pitching, but he handled himself well. He clearly made, made some adjustments. And I think you're right with when it comes to the dollar value. I mean, what do you think this guy would have gotten if he showed up in the free agent market last year? Somewhere close, maybe, to $80 bucks for four years. If you want to get geeky on it and the working number that I've heard most recently for one win above replacement is $8 million, uh, Porcellus had a four-win season, okay? That would be worth $32 million. He's had a two-and-a-half-win season. That would be worth right around $20 million. So... You, you might not be saving a ton of money on his ultimate production. You could be if he pitches up to what he's capable of fully. But even a more middle-of-the-line pedestrian season, you're still probably saving money over what you would have paid had he hit free agency. So in the long view with Rick Porcello, which is, I think, what people lost, and understandably, what else do you have to go on except what you've seen, there's still a decent chance that this deal works out. And who knows? Maybe even a Rizzi Castillo could work out. Just because one deal at one time didn't work out doesn't mean another couldn't. Yeah. I'm not saying Castillo will, but there is time with these things to sort of sort themselves out. Right. I mean, Castillo is going to have to come a long way. That's a that's Absolutely. a difficult one to analyze. I, I do think if Porcello had hit the open market last year at 27 years old, he might have got 80 million bucks. Even considering how bad he was. I, during that season because of how good he was at the end of the season. I mean, Rich Hill had four good starts last year and really not much before that. And he got $6 million bucks from the Oakland A's. I mean, people pay for pitchers. That's been provable. One guy that the Red Sox need to see better of, uh, who they spent a lot of money on, $217 million for, uh, to be exact, is David Price. Not the best start that he would have liked. Uh, ERA over seven through his first four starts. He's pitching well against the Braves right now as we're making this podcast, and he will pitch again on Sunday against the Yankees. Is 
this David Price that we're seeing now, is this a guy that the Red Sox need to be concerned about? Because I'm not concerned. I don't know if fans are yet, uh, but the numbers are a little bit alarming. I think it's fine. You look at the peripherals there, I think he's going to be okay. The velocity seems to be creeping back up after a couple down starts to start the season. And again, that's an April symptom, or at least that's the only fair determination we can make right now. You can't go and thinking it's anything more than that. I was talking to him the other day about what he does in between starts, and he made clear that he adjusts, that it's not, even for a pitcher of his caliber who's been around this long, it's not always the same thing. If he feels he needs a little bit more rest, he'll take it. He knows he's not 23 anymore. He said that. He said, I'm not 23. I can't just wake up in the morning, put my pants on, and throw the ball as hard as I used to be able to, which is... At least he puts his pants on. Right. It's the first thing you got to do, and then maybe brush your teeth, hopefully. Right. But it's impressive to hear him admit that. He, he doesn't have to stand there and say that my fastball isn't what it used to be. And right. it has dropped a little bit, but he's still got a pretty darn good fastball. So there's some self-awareness there. There's a willingness to adjust. And over the life of this contract, he's going to have to. He's And this is why the Red Sox gave him this much money, because this velocity thing isn't new. I mean, he hasn't thrown a pitch over 100 miles an hour in like five years, I think. Uh, his opening day velocity... The last few times he was an opening day starter was 97, 96. Uh, this year it was 92, was his average velocity on his fastball. And he's, he, you're right, he's admitted it. He said, you know, I'm not the same pitcher I used to be. That was 600 innings ago. But the fact that he can change himself, uh, that he can adapt, I think that's what the Red Sox noticed and one of the big reasons they were willing to go seven years on him. It's not just this year. So he's going to have to turn around this year. Um, but what, I mean, is there anything you, you feel encouraged by him? Right? You're not. You're not worried. You feel like there's nothing to worry about with a pitcher of his caliber. The only thing I would worry about is health. Right? Pedro Martinez is a weird comparison here, but you talk to the guy about what happened when he started to lose velocity. You talk to anybody who starts losing velocity. They usually will talk about, well, I learned to pitch, and I think David Price will go with that. But let's also not go too far with thinking he's not throwing 88 right this is this isn't a dip in velocity that's extreme let it grow out let's see what it is in june before that alarm bell is ringing too loud in your head and david price of course has had great control over his career um even tonight we were just watching him throw i mean just spotting pitches exactly where christian vasquez is putting the glove if he does that i'm sure he's going to be okay and red sox fans are going to enjoy watching this guy at fenway park for a long time uh, with that, we will wrap up this week's edition of the Boston Herald Red Sox Stepping Off the Bad po- Bag po- Podcast. We thank Evan Drellick for joining us and Travis Shaw, and we will see you soon. Thanks so much for listening. This audio podcast brought to you by Beacon Hill Wine and Spirits and Beacon Hill Wine and Gourmet. Go to beaconhillwine.com.